Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode 47. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always every week, is the magnanimous Mitchell Davis. What's up? Hey, how's it going? It's going good. I'm ready to get into some more music. So we have unfortunately, yeah, haven't been able to do this as often as we have in the past. Hopefully that'll change, but Mitch and I have both been busy with life. Very busy. <laughs> more, more busy than I care to even mention. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you know, this isn't our job. We aren't paid to do this podcast. So, you know, if you're a rich patron and want to pay us, to do this podcast, then we can do more of them. So, yeah, there's, there's probably somebody out there that'll sponsor us. Yeah. Somebody that's just, you know, I like them. Yeah. You know, so. there's probably somebody out there that'll give us, they probably give us what, 60, 70 grand a year each to do this. I could do that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah if you, that's, that's enough. That's, that's, I'm not greedy. Yeah. You know? If you want to, if you want to do that out there, just contact me at, 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yep. Yep. First come first serve. So, you know, if there was a bunch of people that, that, you know, you better, you know, just get on it because if, if they're, if they're the third bidding, person to contact us, then, you know, you're going to be out of luck. A um, bidding war. That's right. Yeah, that, that'd be funny. <laughs> <laughs> so this week on the show, we have three new albums from Tom Moon's book, 1,000 recordings to hear before you die. The first one we're going to cover is Aaron Copeland, his symphony number three. Uh, then the second one is Return to Forever, their uh, album Light as a Feather. And then the third album we're covering is La Máquina del Tiempo by Cortijo, which means basically the time machine, I think. Um, so let's get right into it. Aaron Copeland, the first album that we're going to uh, look at. Um, this is uh, the recording of his Symphony Number no. Three, done by the New York Philharmonic under Leonard Bernstein, released in 1986. But this piece was premiered in 1946. So uh, this is by the time this was released, uh, the symphony was well established and had been recorded a number of times before. Um, but many consider this one of the the I guess, quintessential recordings of the piece. Um, a little bit about Copeland. Um, he was born in 1900, died in 1990, uh, born in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, when when Copeland was coming up as a musician and, and a composer in the 20s and 30s, uh, this question had been floating around for a long time of, you know, what, what is American music? Is there an American music? Because before this, you know, uh, American music was just sort of an amalgam of music that came from other places in, in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it, uh, music that came from Europe and music that came from Africa and music that came from uh, a lot of different places and sort of migrated over here with the people, right? And people yeah. were, uh, you know there was this question, what is American music? You know, jazz was still fairly early and, and not established, you know, and, uh, Mm -hmm. during this time. And, 
certainly in classical music and then and in classical circles people were asking oh, is there a, is there an american music in classical music you know which at the time there really wasn't you know there was uh, a lot of composers that were just kind of emulating what european composers had done before them and trying yeah. to incorporate start to try to incorporate some american elements to try to produce so one of the early composers of this was charles ives and um he incorporated a lot of american folk music and a lot of uh music of the stephen foster and and american like um hymns and stuff like that you know into the music uh but Aaron Copeland was really the first one to develop this sound that, that we now all associate as American sounding, right? Mm, and whenever yeah. you see anything now that's supposed to be, you know, quote unquote American or patriotic or anything like that, you'll either hear Copeland's music behind it or some music that sounds like Copeland's music. And so Copeland sort of established this sound. He invented it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, and uh, what I was thinking about kind of, you know, before we really started, you know, the show, I, I brought up the issue of, you know, things that I had heard that I associated with him. Like, uh, if anybody's ever watched TV, you've probably seen the, the beef it's what's for dinner commercial and and that that music that's playing in the background while that commercial came on you know some of the things that i listened to uh you know that we're going to kind of talk about i thought you know that kind of sounds like you know aaron copeland it kind of sounds like you know what would, would be considered i guess american music and then you know i kind of got to looking at it and found out it actually it was him you know yeah without me really even knowing that and i was like well you know, I got to think about the, the the thing you were saying, you know, what describes, you know, American music, what makes that, you know, what it is. I mean, is it music that describes the American landscape or the experience or people? I guess it's kind of all of that, you know, and uh, and maybe more where, you know, like you said, you have patriotic themes and, you know, music that's kind of broad and sweeping and. And, and dramatic, but it, and then in times quiet. I mean, he's he's not just one thing, obviously. I mean, he's got a lot of different things, but you know, I mean, as far as what goes into his music and makes it sound the way it sounds, but I mean, you know, he it, there's definitely something definitive about it. I mean, like you said, that you know, the kind of driving it, all the people that came along that were just copying what had happened in Europe, you know, he was sort of set apart you know, from the very beginning to be sort of like the, you know, initiator of, of what you would call American music. So many people obviously begin to copy him and his style, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one thing, one early the, uh, development in Copeland's career that I wanted to mention that they really uh, can't be understated and should be talked about um at some point, and I can't see a better point to talk about it, is Copeland's teacher when he was young. And basically, uh, Copeland's teacher was a woman in France named Nadia Boulanger. And Nadia Boulanger is like one of the most um, underappreciated or under, uh, I don't know, 
not known people <laughs> that had yeah. such an impact on 20th century music. I mean, she taught, uh, if you, if you look at the list of her students, it's like a who's who of 20th century musicians, mostly classical musicians. If you're in the classical world and you look at the, her list of students over the 20th century, it's like a who's who of classical music in the 20th century, but it wasn't just <clears throat> classical musicians, you know, and she had this, way of getting to uh, getting the student to realize what their music was, what their personal mm. music was, and really wow. getting that out of them. So, you know, she got Copeland to realize this and was a huge uh, reason that, you know, he discovered this music that he wrote. Um, she also taught, you know, like Leonard Bernstein. Um, mm. she, she taught Donald Byrd. Um, wow. She taught Philip Glass. Uh, oh wow! She taught Burt Bacharach. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Um, Astor Piazzolla. Uh, she taught Quincy Jones. Okay, now um, that that's that's crazy. I mean, I really yeah. didn't know that she had that many people. Yeah. That that she had under her study. I mean, I mean that's that's in itself. I mean, we could we could do a whole show on that. You know? Well, I know she's super interesting. I mean, uh. Um, if, you know, in the example of Astor Piazzolla, he, uh, if you don't know him, he's big in the classical world, but he was an Argentinian composer and really redefined what the tango was in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And he was studying with her and trying to write all this, you know, serious quote unquote classical stuff. And she said, well, what do you do back in Argentina? And then back in Argentina, you know, he played in these a lot of times, you know, bars and brothels. And he played this sort of accordion-like instrument called a uh, bandoneon. And so he played some tangos for her that he had written. And he, he said that he didn't want to play these because he thought this, she would perceive it as, as low music. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you know, turn up her nose at it or whatever. And so he got finished playing this tango and she said to him, you idiot this is Piazzolla and this is what you should be doing. And that's what he spent his, the the entire rest of his life doing. And she was just good at getting at this, you know, this out of students. So anyway, um, so yeah, he studied with her in the, in the late twenties and thirties when he was, um, in his, uh, well, no, I guess it would have been early twenties because he would have been in his early twenties when he studied with her, um, and invented this kind of American school of classical, music um he also came up during a time where um he was gay so it was a difficult time to you know you couldn't really yeah. come out <laughs> during this so. time um he was also jewish during a time oh. of a lot of anti-semitism and then he was also really liberal and so you know in the 50s and stuff mm-hmm. you know, they were calling him communist and all that yeah stupid. mccarthyism yeah before, that's even before that actually man yeah Oof. and uh you know, I think it's, this is just an aside, but I always think it's interesting that now his music has kind of transcended himself and become this sort of American stuff. And when you, when I, I've seen, you know, political ads and stuff for really right-wing candidates that feature his music. And they use his music. And, that, and I'm like, do, do, do they know that they're using the music of this, you know, li- you know liberal gay Jewish guy? But, um, you know, they, you know, they don't. <laughs> you know, they don't. Yeah. Um, uh, and, it, you know, I can always see just, you know, I don't know, maybe Aaron Copeland with a little wry smile on his face 
from up above or something. You know what well, I mean? <laughs> well, see, that's that's what I love about this country is because there there's so many people that I mean, kind of getting off track. They really don't know the history of anything. You know, I mean, right. you know, there's what you kind of learn in school, but when you really get down into the marrow and the bones of the United States, it's it's so intertwined with people that you would consider, some would consider, un-American. You know, like you said, you know, gay, Jewish, liberal, you know, black, white, whatever, that that aren't, you know, your cookie-cutter, so-called apple pie-eating Americans. Right. But but that's that's why this country is so wonderful still to me. You know, even though there's a lot yes. of stuff here that I don't like, you know, especially on the surface, beneath the surface of America lies, you know, the blood and sweat of people who were just mixed up, you know, all over the place that had all kinds of beliefs and, and, and cultural differences. And, you know, that, that really needs to be kind of pushed more, but anyway, you know? yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, that is a good segue, I think, to bringing up his fanfare for the common man, which, uh, is the piece that he based his third symphony off of. And you, you mentioned, I think before the show, that that's what they always play in the Olympics and stuff like that. You know, ba, 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 dun, dun, dun. Yeah, immediately I recognize it. It was like watching, you know, Looney Tunes where, you know, you, you hear a classical piece and you don't know who it is exactly, but you know that piece because of the, you know, the relation of, whatever you saw on TV. I mean, you know, yeah. TV, the great teacher, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is one of those pieces that I think a lot of people have heard, but can't necessarily, uh, say who it was written by. Right. Um, yeah. and so this symphony, um, that we're going to hear, uh, some excerpts from is based on this fanfare for the common man and uh, fanfare for the common man was written, uh, during world war two. And uh, it was kind of a fanfare for uh, the, you know, the, the common person, right? And mm-hmm. there, there was, you know, they were fighting Hitler and all this stuff. And um, it was a kind of heroic call, you know, to, to the, the normal person. And then um, this piece of Symphony Number no. 3 was written right after World War II ended. So, uh, you know, the music itself is very... I'd say kind of heroic and dignified, you know, it's coming right out of world war two. America is on top of the world in so many different ways, <laughs> mm-hmm. good and bad. And, uh, um, that's what this piece is, is coming out of, you know, and th- there's this huge sense of national pride and, um, and, uh, Aaron Copeland writes the symphony. So it, it was actually his final symphony, his third and final symphony. Um, it's, which is a kind of amazing to me because, you know, he lived t- to 1990 and, you know, he wrote his final symphony in 1946, you know, mm-hmm. so. Um, so anyway, we're going to hear part of the first movement, uh, the Molto Moderato movement. And this is like from the middle of the piece, more in the development. And what we hear in the first three movements are Copeland taking ideas and fragments from this fanfare for the common man and using those pieces to develop, you know, these whole movements of the symphony and this, uh, excerpt that we're going to hear, we're going to hear 
different fragments of the fanfare kind of being tossed around the orchestra. And then this is going to lead into this huge, massive brass chords, you know, like chordal sections, just, just so powerful. Um, yeah, you have any thoughts about this first movement? No, I mean, just, you know, like I said, it, 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 it's one of those tunes, like you said, I, I mean, the moment I, I heard that the brass come in, I was like, oh, I know that. And I mean, it, it was just, it's just one of those things that's it's galvanized in my mind where you, you just, you visualize this, like these people kind of slowly, like kind of marching out of a castle or something, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's just a, such a grand piece of music, um, you know, that that's sort of instills pride in, in a person whenever they hear it, you know, and it's, it's I, I guess that's that's why he wrote it the way he did. I mean, that's that's what I I hear and feel when I whenever I I, I hear that song, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Let's check it out. This first excerpt cool. from Copeland Symphony Number no. Three, Movement One, Molto Moderato. And we just heard an uh, excerpt from the first movement of Copeland Symphony Number no. 3, and we're going to listen to the beginning of the third movement, um, the Molto Deliberato fanfare. Um, so basically, this starts out with a reorchestrated version of his fanfare for the common man. So it's just this is the first time we really get the fanfare 
as the fanfare, right? Before we've just heard little bits of it and fragments of it and ideas and hints of it. Um, the third movement is where he really just brings it home and it starts out with the fanfare. It's reorchestrated for winds in the beginning. So it's, uh, you know, comes, comes like you said, you know, comes in like a, like a processional, like people coming out of a castle or something like you said. <clears throat> and then it, it goes into the brass, you know, the key changes and it goes into the brass and becomes really powerful. Um, and yeah, this is one of those pieces. It just established the blueprint, you know, for what American classical music is sort of viewed as in this sort of American patriotic sound. Uh, so yeah, we're going to hear just the beginning of this where we hear the, uh, fanfare, but uh, really, um, the listeners out there, you should listen to this whole movement because the development, when he actually takes the fanfare and starts developing it in the orchestra, man, it's just, it's super exciting. I mean, just, <clears throat> just, yeah. Awesome. Um, anything you want to say about it? No, just, uh, yeah. You know, like I said, just, you know, just, it, and one thing I, I think about is when, whenever something like this happens is, you know, what, what was going on before this? I mean, you know, if, if this is a man who set the, the standard, so to speak. I, I just, I'm curious about what was going on, you know, during this or before this, as far as what people considered American music. I mean, you know, especially American classical music, you know, um, you know, that, that's the one thing that's kind of lingering in my mind, which I, I, you know, I can kind of look at later, but you know, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's check it out. This last excerpt from Aaron Copeland symphony. Number three, the molto deliberato.
And we just heard the third movement from Symphony Number no. 3 of Aaron Copland, and we're going to move on to our second album, Return to Forever's Light as a Feather, released in 1973. I was released in 1973. <laughs> I think I was four. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this group, uh, led by pianist Chick Corea, uh, and with with bassist Stanley Clark. Stanley Clark uh, and Chick Corea are kind of the constant members, right? Um, uh, aside from them, there have been a bunch of different iterations of Return to Forever with different musicians. And, yeah. uh, you know, before this, I, I had not heard this album, Light as a Feather. I do have, I own uh, the Return to Forever album uh, called Romantic Warrior from a little mm-hmm. late, like 76, I think it was released. And, yeah. I, and, and so that's kind of what I was expecting, I guess. But um, man, this album is like a world away from Romantic Warrior. It's yeah, so yeah. it's totally different. Um, uh, the musicians are uh, the other musicians are Flora Purim, who's a singer, Brazilian singer. Um, Ayrto Moriera. I I hope I'm spelled. I'm probably not saying that right. But that was uh, Flora Purim's husband, also Brazilian percussionist and Joe Farrell, sax and flute. So a lot of this music is very Brazilian. Um, it That's that's what it sounds like. So it's basically Chick Corea on electric piano and um, Stanley Clark on upright bass for most of it. And yeah. it's, it's very, very Brazilian. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. What do you think of this album? Um, I, I hadn't really heard this either. I mean, I, I've heard... You know different stuff that that Chick Corea has played on, and and Stanley as well. Uh, but the rest of the personnel, I, I kind of vaguely knew about. Uh, Chick Corea to me is like one of the most creative people in jazz ever. I mean, you know, yeah. if you go back to looking at him, especially playing with Miles Davis, some of the stuff they were playing, I would say, is is at times really complicated where. You know, Miles was kind of on a whole nother level where he he would just go out there and 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 do things that that at times maybe a lot of people didn't you know understand you know. But it seems like he could go toe to toe with Miles, where you know his creative spirit just kind of would jive with him. And there's certain people in jazz like that where they they don't care. I mean, you know, they can just speak that language, whatever language it may be, or translate it you know, if they don't speak it and then go along with whatever's going on. And this is a good example of how, you know, he takes, like you said, you know, basically a, a core of musicians that, that kind of go on a Latin feel and then molds his style to what they're doing. And, um, you know, it, the, the atmosphere in this record is, is so clear. It's not complicated at all. I mean, you know, it's, it's very fluid at times very harmonic and pretty even, you know, some of the songs yeah. I would, I would literally call very pretty songs where you're like, man, that's beautiful, you know? And I mean, that for me in, in jazz, it, I guess when you, when you have musicians like that, it doesn't, it doesn't already always have my musicians like Chick Corea and, and Stanley Clark. Sometimes, you know, it can come off, you know, I don't know, kind of, you know, above people's heads, if you will. But this this one is not like that at all. I mean, it's it's 
you know, the, the atmosphere is so good. I mean, it's, it's yeah, such a good, yeah. good record. You know, the, I mean, it's the way they play. It's very approachable. Go ahead. Yeah, very. And yeah. I mean, and in a sense, you know, uh, a record, I think that that helped, you know, kind of influence a lot of musicians, you know, on into the future where, you know, they were kind of not afraid of, you know, sort of bringing in certain elements to jazz, like, like Latin rhythms you know, to help, you know, sort of move things along, if you will, you know, and, and the some of the percussion and, and the flute work, you know, I think you said, uh, who's the flute player's name, Joe? Um, uh, Joe Farrell played sax and flute. Joe Farrell. Yeah. His his stuff on here is really amazing. Yes. I mean, you know, some really awesome solos where you're like, yeah, okay, you know, this is, <laughs> this is something I can dig, you know, for, yeah. for me, you know, the moment I heard it, I was like, you know, this is a, a very good record, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is coming off of uh, Chick Corea's work, uh, as you said, with Miles Davis. Uh, he was the pianist on, you know, Miles Davis uh, <clears throat> fusion albums of the late 60s, like In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew, <clears throat> which was like a fusion of jazz and rock and really kind of psychedel psychedelia and yeah, they were yeah. they were really interesting albums. I would say not very approachable. Um, no, no. At, at all. Um, probably more approachable if you were completely tripping on acid or something. Well, um, see, you know, I, I was. <laughs> I guess I was trying to be nice too. I mean, when I say complicated, I mean a lot of bitches brew was was Miles Miles Davis trying to kick. You know, he had a bad apparently yes, heroin yes. addiction. And I mean, a lot of that record was in, inspired by that. So that kind of stuff is is ugly, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. Right, and to right. put that into a musical composition is not easy. But Miles did it, and I mean, it came off as one of the most brilliant records you know people have ever heard, jazz or otherwise. And like I said, Chick Corea is elemental in that record, in in his helping set the atmosphere right. as a really dark one is a really ugly one. Right. But but still staying within the realms of what makes Chick Corea, you know, the man he was. And like I said, I, that's why I think of him as the, being a very, very creative spirit, even today where, you know, he, he can just kind of, you know, find his way, if you will, and, and not like, you know, and, and, and not seem, you know, pretentious or whatever. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um you know, that that period in Miles Davis output <clears throat> um kind of set the stage for this this fusion explosion that happened in the seventies. And mm -hmm. uh Chicoria was really at the at the center of all that, you know. Um yeah. and uh this is like, you know, one of the first records that, like I said, this is really focusing more on Brazilian music, but it got progressively more rockish as mm -hmm. the 70s went on. Like I said, Romantic Warriors, like, uh, if I heard the two played, I would never guess it was the same group with the same name. Yeah. You know, Romantic Warrior is like, it has, you know, Al, the period where he has Aldi Miola on guitar, and um, it's like, it's like progressive, you know, it's like Prague. It's like, uh, yeah. it's very, very rock. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, the the pieces on here, we're going to start with Spain. And Spain has become a, an absolute standard in uh, the jazz world. Um, and, it, you know, as jazz gets more recent, it's it gets more difficult for people to, for uh, pieces to become standards, right? Mm, yeah. Um, so this has become an absolute standard in jazz. And uh, it starts that I'm not sure I'm going to include this in the in the excerpt that we played, but it, it, it's interesting because it starts with this uh, with the, the Concierto of Ranjuez of uh, Joaquin Rodrigo. So it starts with the this version that they did from the second movement of this concerto by Spanish composer Joaquin Rodrigo. Um, it's a guitar concerto for classical guitar, um, which was also the basis, the entire basis for Miles Davis' Sketches of Spain album that he did mm-hmm. with Gil Evans. Um, mm-hmm. So it starts out with this, and then it goes into um, the sort of piece proper. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a great piece. It has a, a great flute solo. <laughs> From Farrell, it's one of the um, the few purely instrumental uh, pieces on this album, which is odd for jazz, right? Usually, jazz albums are purely instrumental. Most of the pieces on this uh, are kind of songs, you know, featuring uh, Flora Purim singing. This is one of the few that is instrumental. So, yeah, even and, though and she then, is. There... Sorry, go ahead. Exactly, that's what I was going to get at. Where you you're saying she her vocals are there, but they're like. Um... They're like wordless, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Just. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I, I. Yeah. I love that about her, where she can go from, you know, one style or another, where where her vocals are are literally, you know, words, or they're, you know, just kind of like, you know, this kind of ethereal, you know, sound singing, if you will. I mean, I I love that. I mean, and yeah. and it. And she just moves right along with the song, you yeah, know, Yeah. Um, like her voice is literally an instrument, you know. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what she's doing. She's using her voice as an instrument and doubling the melody and stuff. Um, yeah, man, uh, just a great piece. Uh, let's check it out. <laughs> cool. <laughs> this is Spain from Return to Forever. Thank you. 
And we just heard Spain by Return to Forever. And we're going to move on to our second excerpt, Your Everything. And this is a song, man. This is like a straight up song. Uh, you know, really features singer uh, Flora Purim, uh, who has the smoothest, um, very sensual kind of voice, kind of alto. Um, and uh, what was I going to say about this? Her, well, her her vocals. I mean, if you if you listen to her sing this song, um, she makes it sound just really smooth and effortless. But yeah. uh, it would be really hard to sing this because her her vocal line just it just twists and turns all over the place, you know, harmonically, and mm-hmm. uh, it would be very very hard to sing this. So I mean, she's super skilled to be able to mm. to really do this and make it sound as as easy as she makes it sound, you know. Yeah, what did you think of this? I I, I totally agree. I mean. I I think this is a, a probably the most I guess if if radio friendly is the word I mean it's it's it, it definitely you could play this on the radio very easily um, because it's it's that accessible but you know like you said it's it's not for you know issue of of her not having any kind of talent I mean she's extraordinarily talented yeah and I mean like you said the the vocal on this is it's it's not easy, but it's easy to appreciate. Um, and I, I definitely was, you know, I was, I was a little surprised by this record. I mean, I wasn't really sure what to expect. Cause like you said, I, you hadn't heard, I hadn't heard it either, but I, I knew of some of the parties and, um, you know, thinking about who was on the record, you know, before you listen to it, you think, well, would this really work? You know? And I, I knew how Chick Corea was, but I didn't know, you know, per se that he had the ability to kind of go on the Latin side like this, you know. And I mean, you know, it, it works very well. You know, the the whole record itself is is one of those records that, uh, you know, it, it it it's solid throughout. And um, yeah, yeah, you know, like you said, it's just, you know, the 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 vocals on on this track like you said i mean it's it's just amazing to to hear her you know kind of work at what she does i mean she's she's obviously you know really talented i mean you know you know probably world renowned you know especially at this point i mean this record came out so long ago and i i think she still sings uh as far as i can remember i she's uh i think she's still around if i if i remember correctly I think I saw like a live record of hers come out like a few years back. Okay. Um, well, that's that's probably it, something I should have looked up, but I didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I'm just just throwing it. Just throwing yeah, it yeah. Out there. yeah. I mean, you know, just I, because I, 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 you know, I, I'd like to hear it too. I mean, I, I really, I don't think I've listened to it, much of her stuff at all. You right. Know? Right. But, uh, well, return anyway. to, return to forever is um, is back together, and they are oh, they've really? been yeah they've been touring. So it's it's more like. Uh, like the romantic warrior era stuff, oh, um, okay. you know, and they've got, um, I know they've got Jean-Luc Pondy playing with them, the violinist and, uh-huh. um, their guitarist is Frank Gambale, um, who's, mm. uh, a, all like is a sort of a jazz super shredder kind of fusion <laughs> player. 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think I remember you know, from where we used to work. I think I remember seeing some of his records. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that what you described him as that's about that's about dead on. Right. You know. So uh, I mean, yeah, you can go to YouTube. There's some live video of them from the last couple years. Um, if you want to check that out, but um, yeah, let's check out this last excerpt from Return to Forever. This is your everything. Nothing seems so right as to be with you And when I'm with you I always sing your everything And as time goes by Floating like a bird in my Even songbirds seem all to sing your everything so much fun for those who know that in lawful life's a game then as we go dancing through the sun in love and as time goes by floating like a bird in my even some birds i know all sing your everything everything from return to forever and we're going to move on to our last record of this episode la machina del tiempo by rafael cortijo um released in 1974 uh cortijo lived from 1928 to 1982 and uh, he was a musician in puerto rico that uh led kind of a uh a revival or resurgence of a musical form called plena um that plena kind of came around around the turn of the century around 1900 um it came out of the kind of the barrios or the slums of puerto rico and uh it originated as kind of a simple song-like form uh it's centered around a very particular rhythm that was developed as this plena rhythm and around this homemade frame like drum sort of sort of like a tambourine without the the metal jiggly parts <laughs> mm-hmm. um and uh in the 60s and 70s he kind of led this revival of plena um but it's again it's a mixed just like was going on with return to forever and it was going on in jazz and 
and a lot of other genres was mixing with other genres. It's like a like a plena fusion, right? So yeah. it's being mixed yeah. with rock and jazz and and other South American forms. I, I would say even some soul and R and B too. Um, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's really. I mean, like, and you you keep harping on rhythm. Rhythm is the key on on a lot of this record. Oh man. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. mean, just <laughs> I I was really blown away. It's another record I hadn't really heard ever before. I mean, was blown away from the first moment. I mean, I was like, okay, that sounds like what Puerto Rico is to me. I mean, like music that makes me want to dance and not just dance, but get down and dance, you know? I mean, very high energy, yeah. you know, very high groove, you know, kind of slick even at times where I was like, man, okay, this is really good. <laughs> you well, you, you've been to Puerto so, Rico, right? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And uh, like I said, when I, when I listened to, uh, this guy, I was thinking to myself, he is he is definitely from Puerto Rico. That is that that pure Puerto Rican rhythms sound like this to me. I mean, when I when I went there, and I mean, especially if you go to Old San Juan at night, you know, I mean, it's just so much fun, and the people literally dancing in the streets. You know, I was like, okay, all right, this is good. But that's <laughs> what this sounds like to me. I mean, just you know, the the the, the percussion. And, and, and the horn and, you know, it was, it was very reminiscent of that. So, <laughs> yeah. just, and, and like you said, I mean, there's so much else that they kind of throw in to, to be adventurous, you know, like some jazz rhythms and, and, and some Brazilian rhythms, um, you know, that's a lot of fun when you, you can kind of, you know, cut loose, so to speak, and, and, and let people have, you know, a good time with, with, with whatever kind of rhythm you want to throw at them, you know, yes. that's, and especially when you know how, how to play like this guy can play, you know? So. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is one of those albums where, you know, you listen to it. I mean, if you, 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 th you think you have rhythm, you don't have rhythm like these, <laughs> like these guys have rhythm. No. You know? <laughs> I, I um, wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, this first excerpt that we're going to listen to, La Verdad, which means the truth. Um, th this rhythm section, just they, they weave this, this complex rhythmic tapestry. You know, this woven so tight. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and it's yeah. just it, it, maybe the, the, the basic form of the song is somewhat simple, but there's nothing simple about what's going on in that framework you know you just hear this it's almost like you're just surrounded by this rhythm you know that you just have to hear to appreciate and it's it's just so tight and so um man it's it's so it's just awesome yeah what, what did you think yeah, of like, la verdad like you said very tight very slick i mean i just i i i, I was captivated from the very moment you know, I, I first started listening, you know, and I, I was just like, this is music that that's going to make people, I mean, unless they, you know, they're flatline, want to get up and groove, even if they don't do it, it'll make them kind of want to do it or at least watch people, you know, get up and groove. I mean, it's it's just that type of music, very fiery, you know, very high energy, very energetic, you know, 
I mean, it's music that that really doesn't get old ever. You know, right. I mean, even though it may have come out years ago, this is really I mean, it it, it easily will blow away a lot of stuff that you hear on the radio that's considered popular now. You know, oh, yeah. whether it's here or Puerto Rico or wherever, I mean, it's just it's, it just is really jamming, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's really all I can. I mean, it's, that's that's all I can say. I mean, it's 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 just jamming, grooving, you know, I mean, just the sound of Puerto Rico, pure Puerto Rico is what this is to me. OK. You know? Awesome. Let's check this out. This first excerpt from Rafael Cortijo. La verdad. And we're going to move on to excerpt number two, Gumbo. So, um, you know, one influence in this music and one huge influence in Puerto Rican culture is this Creole culture. And we also, you know, we often associate Creole culture with New Orleans and Louisiana. But I mean, it's a big part of Puerto Rican history and culture as well. Um, And this track gumbo uh you know it uh it shares to my ears you know it shares so much with the fusion that was going on in the 70s and it's really you know oftentimes you know we say this we just go by alphabetical order in the book but a lot of times it's really interesting what stuff gets paired together right next to each other you know Mm. and it's interesting that this is right next to return to forever, you know, because they're going on at the same time in the seventies and they're both fusion. And, uh, this shares a lot with, you know, groups like return to forever and with the stuff Aldi Miola did after 
Return to Forever. I even hear, you know, some stuff that Frank Zappa was doing. There's some parallels uh, in the 70s. Um, and this piece is just, it's like this blazing instrumental. I mean, it's so cool and it's so 70s, but in the best possible way, right? Like yeah. this, this track for me, like embodies like all the good that came out of the 70s in music. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean yeah. that's when you were talking about Return to Forever, especially like the the version that you said, like it's, that's on tour now. People are so more opportunistic and and kind of you know free to to expand what they were doing in the seventies. I mean, it was a time where it seems like things were much more adventurous than they are t- today. You know, in certain levels. I mean, you I mean you have people on the independent sort of level that may be doing different things but as far as music that comes out you know on on major labels it's nobody's really taking a lot of chances you know and um that can get really boring um but the 70s were i mean people were just so much more willing i mean as far as people spending money on records you know putting records together and and making records too i mean you know let's try this you know this is something that seems kind of weird but you know let's let's do it and see what happens you know and um that let's do it and see what happens kind of mentality it seems like it's almost gone (laughs) yeah i know it's more like you know here's the assembly line let's you know this worked before we got another guy who sounds like this. We'll put him out there too. That's right. You know, of course, yeah. there's, there's ten of them out there right now that all sound the same. But that's okay. You know, we just we just want to make money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, all the experimentation and stuff like that has moved to the internet now, and I think record labels yeah. are are their attitude is well, you know, this is. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll let the internet handle that and we're struggling and we're only going to release things that we're pretty sure are going to make a bunch of money. Um, yeah. And play and it, and play it super that, safe. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny about that is eventually the, the internet, I mean, it already in a lot of ways is, but it, it's going to really just consume most of what people do as far as their choices of, 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 buying music i mean you know that that's really already happened but i mean i i I can't imagine one day where the so-called major labels don't really exist anymore but that probably is coming you know to some certain extent it already has you know i mean you you have some artists that you know they still do pretty good you know selling records but and really not to get off subject but i mean when you have like like last year you know I think the record that sold like the most copies was maybe Justin Timberlake's album, which was almost like five million. That really is not a lot, you know. Right, right. For your your biggest, I I can remember back in the day when we sold records, you know. So like somebody like Alanis Morissette, I mean, in one year she sold like seventeen million copies of Jacket Little Pill. That was just nuts yeah but it was just she had this voice for you know a music buying public that had been really quiet either forever or for a long time and then all of a sudden she comes along and it's like okay i can get with her you know and here's you know 17 million records later anyway 
you know, if if record companies don't really start, you know, doing some different things, they're going to be obsolete, you know. And it's yeah, it's just yeah. fun to, to look back and see an era where uh, an artist like this was just so willing to to put what he had on on the table and mix it up with some other young artists. I think he went to like the University of Puerto Rico and just found the best of what they had as far as musicians and said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do a record that's that's really rootsy Puerto Rico, but has some new ideas, some some jazz, some soul, some Puerto Rico, some American, some some Creole. We're just gonna groove and, and people are gonna like it. And then we're gonna, you know, shock the world, so to speak. So Yep. Awesome. Let's let's listen to the last track from Rafael Cortijo. This is Gumbo. heard gumbo from cortijo and that's going to do it for this episode of the 1000 recordings podcast if you'd like to send us an email send it to 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can look at our website at 1000rp.blogspot.com you can follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp and you can join us on facebook and if you really like the show or really don't like the show head over to itunes <laughs> and leave us a review a rating and a review and uh, we will read it on the show and uh, next week let's see I Elvis have Costello my out. yeah Elvis, Elvis Costello, Costello. Attractions. yep Armed Forces 
is yep. probably one of his his biggest selling records ever. You know, Elvis yep. Costello. Yep. It's, that's going to be fun talking about him. Yeah. yeah the, the then and the now. Sure. Um, uh, then we're going to have Disraeli Gears by Cream. Yeah. That should then, be fun, too. Um, Willie and the Poor Boys by Credence Clearwater Revival. Yeah, three really good records. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, that'll be cool. Very a very rock show next time. Yep, so. <laughs> yep. A lot, a lot of history with all those, all those records, all those artists. Yeah, you know, be fun to go with. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, um, I think that's it. Yep. All right, man. Well, cool. I will see you next time. Um, Have a good one, and I'll see everybody else next time for some new records later.